0: good morning brothers sisters Uh, you might be wondering what's in my pocket it uh, probably looks kind of weird my wife was like take it out of your pocket and I was like no I'm not taking it out Um, it's a surprise but what we're gonna do is we're gonna pray and then I'll show you guys amen dear heavenly father uh, thank you for bringing us all together and just the the blessing that you've heaped upon us this morning just uh, getting here safely through the snow and um, just being together Lord, to praise you and worship you. I pray that this message would be from your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, I'll show you guys now. It's uh, it's uh, this thing. Uh, this is just, I don't even know. This is just some ball. But uh, who who wants it? All right, Devin wants it. There you go. So actually, a few of you raised your hands. I was kind of surprised because that thing is pure junk, and it doesn't belong to me, so you're going to have to put it back downstairs. <laughs> um Let's not play catch. <laughs> but, you know, the reason I did that, there was a, uh, some time ago I was in Malawi, Africa, and I was, uh, we, a number of us, were actually coaching basketball. Uh, I'm sure many of you have heard about it. And we were at a refugee camp. And I had a water bottle. And it really wasn't, I, actually it was a pretty expensive water bottle, so I'm sorry I left it in Africa, dear. Uh, but it was my wife's. And I was holding it, and we were coaching basketball, and this little kid's following me around. And he was following me around all day. But then all of a sudden, and he was speaking French, but he said to me, he said, give me that. And and I was like, no, uh, it's my wife's. And he was like, no, give it to me. And I said, no, I can't do that. Like, I I only have one. It's not mine. And I just can't give it to you. And he just, then he said, he said, and I'm going to use French because it's really, it's a simple thing that he said. He said, je n'ai pas à ma maison. I do not have at my house. And I was like, Wait, what don't you have at your house? And he said, I have nothing. I have nothing at my house. And I was like, I still can't give it to you, <laughs> but you just broke my heart. <laughs> like, I got to do that. But he lived in a refugee camp. He's from the Congo. And he had nothing. And so today's sermon, I want to talk about gratitude. I want to talk about the abundance that God brings through Jesus and the response that we ought to have to that. Does that sound good? So I'll get back to that story and why I threw that ball later. Okay, so in John, we're preaching through John, or I am, and in John chapter 1, we talked about verse 14 through 18, uh, last time I preached, and it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And What we talked about last time was that Jesus was the dwelling of God amongst his people, just made real in the present, in the flesh, and how that was really God's intention from the beginning. You know, in the garden, he left because of sin, and then Cain was driven out even further because of his sin, and so sin drives us away from the presence of God, and apart from God's presence, we're wanderers on the earth, right? We have no peace. We have no rest. There's no order. There's just chaos and destruction, and it's a very bad situation, and so Jesus came as God's solution to that situation. Okay, and so we're not talking about that today, but we're going to talk about how as a result of Jesus coming, there was a fullness of grace that came. Grace upon grace, that's what it says. And that's literally what it says. It's like grace stacked on top of grace and a fullness of grace. And what I want to show today is that the grace that we receive from Jesus is so abundant that it can overflow from us to those around us. And have an incredible impact on the people in our lives, Amen. So I'm going to read uh, a pretty decent chunk here of John 1, uh, because I feel like it would be really weird to preach from John and not have any context about what happens in John chapter 2, which is where we're going to do most of our study today, Amen. Okay, so we're going to look in in John uh, 29, chapter 1, verse 29. Not chapter. There is no chapter 29. Uh, it says. So here's John the Baptist, he's preaching about Jesus, and it says the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the Lamb of God, he who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. That's pretty funny. Like, behold, the Lamb of God. And Everybody just starts, okay, let's follow that guy. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so, whoops. He said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him. That day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother and said to him, We have found the Messiah. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? (laughs) Wonderful answer. There's no deceit. How did you know? (laughs) I guess because you didn't lie about it. Uh, He says, (laughs) there's no deceit. And he said, how do you know me? He said, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Okay, so, so far, can we get the next slide, Brenda? Uh, So far, we've seen all these people, and what do they do? They hear about Jesus, or they see him, and they go tell their friends. They tell their brother, hey, I found the Christ. See, because the Jews were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for him, and they're looking for him, and they're hoping that Jesus is the one. And so, they're starting to bring all these followers together. And and John the Baptist is is out there preaching, like, this is the Christ. And people are believing in that. But not everyone. Not everyone believes. Um, and we'll see more of that as we go on in John. People spreading the word and most people not believing, but some do. But Jesus says, you will see greater things than this. And then he says, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, I don't want to talk too much about this, but what you notice is that Jesus is using the same language as Genesis chapter 28 when Jacob fell asleep and he had a dream that there was a stairway to heaven and God was standing over him when he woke up. <laughs> Can you imagine waking up in God's just like right there? I would be freaking out like thra- like oh no. <laughs> it's terrifying right? Who is this guy? He just appeared out of nowhere but Jacob calls that place Bethel. It means house of God because God spoke to him there and so Jesus is telling them, you will see the house of God on me. And we'll see that theme come up more and more. But he promises that they would see greater things than this. Okay? And why did John write all of this stuff? Because it, it can feel like I've studied John a decent amount now, and sometimes I feel like it's kind of random. Like, oh, okay, these people are following Jesus. And then the next story is about a wedding, and Jesus turns the water to wine. I guess it feels really random. And It just seems like he just grabbed a bunch of little short stories and stuck them together. It's like an anthology. And John himself says why he wrote it. He says this in John 20. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, John's intention when he wrote this book was to convert people. So that they would have life. And so in many ways, when we read the book of John and we want to understand the meaning of a passage, we will not go far away from what he intended if we just say, how does this help me believe in Jesus? Amen? And so I want to look at this next story and how it helps us to believe in Jesus. But before we do that, I want to point out a pattern. Do You notice that John says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And the next day, John was standing with two of the disciples. And the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Can you go to the next slide, Brenda? He keeps saying this, like the next day, the next day, the next day. And then there's a day where it says they stayed with him that day. And the way that Jews reckon days, that actually adds up to two days. And then the next day, and then on the third day, okay, all of that, it's hard to explain, but it all adds up to seven. That's really the point, seven days. Now, if we remember... Seven days is how long it took the Lord in Genesis 1 to complete the creation. And so for some reason, and I'm not sure I could say why, John wants us to think of the seven days of creation as he talks about this next story. Okay, and I think I'm saying that because I want you guys, if, if you take that home and meditate on it, you'll probably get something great out of it. I'm not going to dwell on it right now. Okay, I just want to read the story. And I wanted to point that out because I think it's super awesome. Okay, so on the third day. Chapter 2, verse 1. There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the, when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. And Jesus said, Okay, I, was, I, was, I had a time with some of the teens the other day. Literal translation of this. No, we didn't have wine. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Literal translation of this is, He says, woman, why do you involve me? But the little translation is, what is it to me and thee, woman? (laughs) It's kind of funny, right? But woman is not a term of disrespect. In our culture, it kind of is. In Jesus' culture, it wasn't. But it also wasn't the same thing as acknowledging someone as your mother. And so Jesus has now put her on the same level as any other woman, which is interesting. But he says, why do you involve me? It's actually a very gentle rebuke. Like, this is not my concern. It doesn't matter to me. Why are you trying to pull me into this? But Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. And that's why it's not my concern. And that statement seems really like, what do you mean your hour has not yet come? What does that mean? In the context, it really doesn't mean anything to his mother. I I would wager she has no idea what that means. (laughs) And she doesn't seem to care. His mother says "The servants, do whatever he tells you. She (laughs) assumes that he's going to do it anyway. Which is pretty interesting. I think she had come to rely on Jesus because he was a man of reliable character. And so when you need something, I don't think she was expecting a miracle. The Bible stresses this was his first miracle. But she was expecting that he's reliable. He'll figure it out. And so he, he rebukes her, but it's very gentle. And she just kind of accepts, like, yeah, okay, but he'll be good to me anyway. <laughs> right? That's the grace of God. Like, really, is it God's concern whether or not the Vikings ever win a Super Bowl? No, but I still ask him sometimes, right? I mean, <laughs> you got to try, and maybe we will, amen? But it's just one of those things. It's like, is God really that concerned? Maybe not, but he'll still give. And so we see this this response, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Okay, can I get the next slide? Okay, so this might seem random. It's not. Okay, so he says, take it to the master of the banquet. Fill it to the brim. And we're starting to wonder, like, what's the big deal about having no more wine? Like, why does that? I mean, yeah, okay, it's a party. It's a wedding. Like, we want to have more wine. But why is this so important to Jesus' mother, who is, it seems, not in charge of the wedding at all, that she brings it to Jesus? And so I want to talk about the Jewish view of history, right? Because we all have a view of history and how it works. In fact, in our modern world, we think that the world's always getting better. And if everybody was just in a democracy with better technology, we'd all be saved. And it's just not true. But that's how we view it. History is like a ladder and mankind is ascending. That's how we tend to view history. But the Jews viewed history like this. We are in this day over here, and we call this Olam Hazza, the present evil age. And it's a very bad day. It's not a place that you want to be. It's good, or it was intended to be good, but it's filled with evil and trouble and strife and sorrow. You know, I was just reflecting earlier because I went on Facebook. I don't I don't do this that often, but I went on Facebook, and I looked at the number of people just from my graduating class that have passed away. It's like eight, nine, ten years ago. It's completely absurd. Like, it blows my mind. It doesn't even seem real. Or even this tragedy with Kobe Bryant recently, right? And all those families that lost people that they loved just randomly. I mean, it's just a helicopter crash. And you think to yourselves, it is an evil day. Even when things seem like they're going perfect, Kobe was rich. He had a great family. He was at church that morning. But he's dead. And I've talked to numerous people here in Eau Claire that are impacted by that. Because it makes you realize this evil day is real and it's very bad. And then there's the new day, okay? They call this that day in the scriptures, or the day to come. Jesus uses this language all the time, and the Bible does too. It'll say things like, on that day, and it's like this hopeful, there will be something different. There's this day, and that's where we live, and someday God will bring that day, and that will be corresponding with the coming of the Messiah, who is the Christ, and that will bring out full peace and happiness and abundance. Okay, and wine was symbolic. Let's go to the next slide. Wine was symbolic of this division of time for people. It says, behold, the days are coming. So we're over here. We're in that day when the plowman will overtake the reaper. So as you're plowing, they're already harvesting. It's just a constant harvest, right? It's a plentiful. And the treader of grapes, the sower of seed, the mountains will drip with sweet wine with which all the hills will flow. I will restore my people Israel from captivity. They will rebuild and inhabit the ruined cities. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will firmly plant them in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land that I have given them. So here's one prophecy that God gives, and he says, That day will be like there's so much wine, it's just dripping from the mountainsides. And so it's a symbol of abundance and prosperity. Here's a couple more. For the next slide, please. The threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk. It's like a direct quotation, right? These are two different books of the Bible. The mountains will drip with wine. There's going to be good wine everywhere. Okay, this is a picture of abundance. You know, it's like when I went in my parents' fridge, I opened it up, and there's six gallons of milk, and I was like, all right, we're drinking good today, boys. <laughs> And we and yeah, we we drank six gallons in one day. It was awesome. (laughs) And then my mom had to go to the grocery store. So sorry, Mom. Um, This is a symbol for them of utter abundance, right? Like, wow, there's so much wine, and it's delicious. And so when Jesus' mother comes and says, they have no more wine, I don't know if she had this in mind, but Jesus, he heard it. He's like, yeah, my hour has not yet come. But I want to point you to that day. And so I will do what you ask me, right? The wine, the shortage of wine represents the evil age. And the abundance represents a new age. Next slide, please. They did so. Okay, so Jesus tells them, fill up the water, draw it out, and bring it to the master of the banquet. He's the one in charge of the wine, so he's the one who blew it, right? So they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned to wine. He did not realize where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests are drunk, but you have saved the best till now. You have saved the best till now. Now think about it. Did the bridegroom do anything? No, it was Jesus. But he thinks that it was the bridegroom. And later on, we'll see in John chapter 3 that Jesus is described by John as the bridegroom. This is symbolic, and it's deliberate. And so he says, you've saved the best till now. But here's the problem. Once they drink all the wine that Jesus made, what happens again? They have no more wine. They're still in this age. Jesus has pointed them to the abundance of that age, but they're still in this age. Next slide, please. Okay, so this is how Jesus viewed things. And it's, it's a little bit more complex than I would say the typical Jewish view. So Jesus completely agrees. There's an evil age. And he talks about it a lot. And then there's an age to come. But Jesus also has this time called the last days, or today. This time when he brings in all the blessings of that age to come into the present. Jesus talks about this with Martha. Martha's brother Lazarus died. And Martha's like, Jesus says, you know, if you believe in me, you will never die. And Martha goes, yes, I know, Lord. Anyone who believes will see the resurrection at the last day. She's like, yeah, of course. Over there? Yeah, I know that great thing's going to happen. But what about right now, Jesus? I don't know if she's questioning him. I think she's just being sincere. But Jesus goes, no, if you believe in me, you will never die. He's talking about the present. And what does Jesus do? He goes and raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, we still have a problem. Lazarus died later on. He died again. He's not here to this day. And so Jesus has brought in the blessings of the age to come with all its abundance, with its eternal life, with its joy and happiness. But we're still trapped in this evil age, and we're in an intermediate state. We're in a place where many of the blessings have come, but they're not here fully yet. That's why we talk about a second coming. And this is why my Jewish roommate never understood what I meant. He's like, what do you mean a second coming? The Messiah comes and it's over. And I was like, no, there's an intermediate. And he's like, no, there's not. And I was like, yeah, Jesus showed us. There's an intermediate stage. You know, and that's what the Jews, many of them didn't understand about Jesus. And that's why they didn't believe in him because they were making assumptions about how history was going to work. And to this day, that's why many people don't believe in Jesus. They make assumptions about history. They assume that people from the past are stupid. That they don't know that water doesn't turn into wine. That's the whole point. This isn't normal, you guys. This is crazy. And so believe, right? That's the whole point. And even in Jesus' time, the signs did not guarantee that people would believe. Ivy and I have been watching a show. It's pretty interesting. And in it, there's a psychologist, and she's constantly analyzing these situations where people. The, so she works for the Catholic Church, but she doesn't believe. And the Catholic Church is like these people are possessed. And she comes in and tries to prove them wrong. And that's her job, so they want that. And every time, she comes up with a reason why it's not actually spiritual at all. Every time. But then every time, she doubts herself because something happens that she can't explain. It's really interesting. But how many things can we explain away if we want to? Anything. You can literally explain away anything. I promise you, it's true. Because I've done it. I'm very good at mental gymnastics. Uh, You know, come at me with my flaws. I'll dodge you. I'm good at that right? And so we have this evil age, we have the age to come, and Jesus is bringing that abundance of wine into the present. But it's not fully realized yet, because the wine will run out. Okay, go to the next slide. So here's a picture of those kids in Africa, and actually you can see uh, the little guy who wanted the bottle right there. I could spot him. Uh, He followed me around all day, so it makes sense. And, you know, I was thinking, like, man, this abundance that comes from Jesus—it's so overflowing—and I have so much. I have this bottle of water, and he wants it so bad, but I can't give it to him. So I was like, "Man, what could I give to some of these kids?" And I was told you're not allowed to do that, but I was like, "Listen, guys, I gotta do this. I gotta do something." And so we had a we had a bag of tennis balls, and I was like, "Reggie." Reggie was running the camp. I said, "Reggie, can I give him a tennis ball?" And he was like, "Yeah," and, I, and he's like, "But just one though, because we need those, right? We need them to teach basketball. It makes sense." And the reason we're told not to give the kids stuff is because if you give them stuff, the other kids get jealous and beat them up and take it. Like, it's not good. And so, there, so anyways, but I asked also some of the African, older African men. I said, if I give this to them, will they be okay? And they're like, yeah, we'll make sure. And so they were, you know, kind of watching out. And I pulled out a tennis ball. I kid you not, 100 kids swarmed me. <laughs> I don't even think they knew what I was doing. They just saw a ball. They literally surrounded me. And I was holding it like that. And was just like I threw it to Devin. And, and one of them bit my arm. <laughs> he was trying to make me drop it so he could grab it. And I was like, man, just for a tennis ball. Yeah. Right? These kids were so happy to see a tennis ball. And here I get bitter when my Wi-Fi goes out. What's that about? I've become used to the abundance that Jesus has given me. And I don't see clearly, Right? So, so I finally said, you know, they all surrounded me and they were behaving badly. So I said to one of the African guys, I said, hey, who should I give it to? And he goes, that little girl right there, this little girl, I don't know how old she She was so small. And she just goes, <laughs> and she runs off and she's so happy. It's a tennis ball, you guys, come on. My grandpa would pick those up just walking around the neighborhood. they are everywhere. But for them, they're not. See, we're still in that evil age. But through us, Jesus can make a difference. You know, there was a story told while we were in Africa. I don't remember the exact context, but essentially of why these little things actually matter. This guy was in uh, Colombia, I think. He was really poor. He was an orphan. And somebody gave him a pencil, and he never forgot it. It's a pencil. I lose more pencils in a day than... And he never forgot it. And he remembered that as the grace of God. You know, when we are grateful, we're more gracious to others. I believe Jesus was filled with gratitude for the things God had given him because I don't see him complaining once. I complain every day. And here Jesus is like, listen, I'm going to give you the wine. Now, I don't believe in drunkenness, so this is not my issue. But because of my graciousness, I'm going to give you the best wine right now. And you have a great party because I want you to think about the age to come. And so Jesus' call to us is that his gracious goodness and gifts to us would overflow to everyone around us because that's what happened in him. There was an overflowing even to people who were unworthy. You know how often we tarnish or we hold back our giving because we go, well, they're not worthy. Are we worthy of the gifts that God has given us? I would say I'm not. I'm most certainly not. And I would say all of us are not worthy of those gifts. And yet, God gives them anyways. You know, Jesus said this. Go to the next slide, please. Sorry. <laughs> and why do you worry about clothes? You know, this morning, I was like, Ivy, what should I wear? I was worried about clothes a little bit. Like, <laughs> What do I wear? But it was a good question. You'll say, yeah, it's true, because I have no idea. So, amen. She was helpful. And she also ironed my shirt. Amen. Thank you, dear. And You know, I said, why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? (laughs) Not worthy, you of little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. See, there's a freedom that comes when we realize that in this evil age, yes, yes, we will have shortages. There are many people in our world who just do not have everything that they need, and we recognize that. But when we realize that we have more than we need, we can supply what is lacking for them, and we can stop worrying. Not because we've saved up so much in our bank accounts, right? Oh, I'm not worried about my retirement. I've got 500 grand, so, you know, that's not how it works. I mean, you don't know what's going to happen to that money, but you don't worry because you seek first his kingdom. And you know that even if you were to die right now, you would enter the age to come where there's wine everywhere and there's no problems, right? We don't have to be anxious about the future. And that frees us up to be generous in the present. You know, when we're anxious about the future, we go, I can't give you that. I got to put that in my barn. That's for me. What happens, if you know? And I'm not saying the Bible doesn't teach us to save our money or be wise about the future. It totally does. But we should not be anxious. This is not a suggestion by Jesus. It's actually a command. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Do not do it. And yet I find myself doing it all the time. I, lay, I lie awake at night and I worry about tomorrow. Right? It's like this is just, it doesn't make sense. And Jesus is freeing us to be generous like he was generous. Jesus was not rich. And yet he made many rich. He owned everything, but he gave it all up for our sake. And so that's the call that we have. Next slide, please. So it says this, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. Can we get the next slide, please? Okay, so I want you to think about this, this idea of we live in an evil age and the abundance that will come in the new age, but we're in that intermediate state, right? The Jews feel like they're over here. Christians are supposed to, according to Jesus, feel like we're right in the middle. We're bringing it into the present until it comes fully. And this this helps us to understand things that the Bible says, like in Ephesians chapter 5. It says, pay careful attention then to how you walk not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. The days are evil, so redeem it and bring it to this direction. Do not allow the days to overcome you, but redeem the time, right? Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to reckless indiscretion. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Jesus bringing the wine was also a pointer of the abundance of God's Spirit. He was not trying to promote drunkenness, he was trying to promote joy in the Lord. Why do people get drunk, anyways? I I think the very act of getting drunk points to the reality of what Jesus was doing. Because when we get drunk, okay, I've never been drunk, but. When people get drunk, they're generally trying to do one. I've listened to country songs, I know. They're trying to do one of two things. (laughs) Okay, they're trying, yeah. Hey, you know, I grew up listening to country music too, but man, at some point, we got to say something about it. Okay, so here we go. We're trying to get drunk in the country songs because we want to forget the evil age, and we want to think about the age to come. People do this, and they don't even know it. They want to live like it's the age to come, but it's not. And what it leads to is reckless indiscretion. Because when you act like it's the age to come, and you take everything for yourself, you don't deal with reality, which is that we are in the evil age. And if you just try to forget that we're in the evil age, again, you just cause more harm for others. And you promote the evil age by so doing. But Paul's charge is, no, redeem the time. Don't do those things because we're not trying to forget that we're in the evil age and we're not trying to pretend like we're already in the age to come. He actually speaks to that directly when he says that people who think the resurrection has already come, they're fools and they're wrong. He's like, no, we're in the intermediate state. We have all the signs. Jesus showed us what it would be like and we're supposed to bring that and redeem the time. Does that make sense? And he says, speak to one another With psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, sing and make music in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, to those of us who are Christians in this room, I challenge you to always give thanks. When you grumble, rebuke yourself. The other day, I was just whining in my head, just a big baby. Oh, my life. uh, And I just thought about that little kid and I said, This is pathetic. Like, pull it together. And I said, you know what? You should be really grateful. And then I started to think about all the things I should be grateful for. And you know what? I was really grateful, and I had a much better time. (laughs) It was way more fun. And we need to encourage one another to do that. And I think sometimes I allow people to complain too much. And I'm not saying you need to be harsh about it, because we've all done it. But there's a time when you can say, hey, brother, that's enough of the complaining. I'm really tired of it. I'm not complaining, but I'm tired of it. (laughs) Okay? So, amen. All right. Um, Next slide, please. But to those of us who don't know or don't believe in God, I want to talk about something that I hope it makes sense. I'm not a physicist. I'm not an expert on these issues. But the point is that I was reading online. I love to look up what atheists say about the miracles of Jesus. And one of them was talking about how you know, if Jesus actually did this, there would have been a nuclear explosion because the science says blah, blah, blah. And I was like, man, you don't understand miracles at all. (laughs) Like, that's not the point. What do you, it's not a science, he didn't do a reaction in a lab. But anyway, so I'd like to look those things up. And they make, and the reason they do this is not, it actually has nothing to do with whether or not Jesus could have done such a thing. It's that they assume that he could not have. So we have to start without assumptions. And I want to give you guys an illustration of why we can't assume we know as much as we think we know, and why we should actually probably have a little bit more doubt about our own conclusions. And I say this to myself as well. Uh, so, in, in kind of the 20th century, physics had a huge leap forward. It's called quantum mechanics, quantum physics, whatever you want to call it. And essentially, the result was that they knew less than they thought they did. <laughs> it's a leap forward that leads to, yeah, we don't know anything. <laughs> And one of the big principles that has come out, they did a study, I think in 2000, where they found that people observing reality creates it. Essentially, you could look, so light, right? So typically things are either a particle, so they're like like solid, or they're a wave. They're like energy and they go through things, right? Like radio and stuff like that. Well, light is both, but that should be impossible. How could light possibly be both? Well, what they discovered is that light becomes what it is when someone looks at it. So if they were trying to figure out if it was a wave, it acted like a wave. And if they're trying to figure out if it was a particle, it acted like a particle depending on whether or not they were looking at it. People, too. It's not like it's, it's both at the same time. It becomes one or the other based on what people are expecting of it. It's completely ridiculous. I have no idea what that means. And neither did they. <laughs> and that's why this guy, his name is uh, Jonathan Wheeler. Uh, this is a description of him from an article called, Does the Universe Exist If We're Not Looking? It says he was an early advocate. This is Jonathan Wheeler. He was a contemporary of Einstein and friends with Einstein, very intelligent man. He's an American. He's still alive. I think he's uh, out in Maine somewhere, I think. He might have died recently. He was an early advocate of the anthropic principle, the idea that the universe and the laws of physics are fine-tuned permit the existence of life. For the past two decades, he has pursued a far more provocative idea for an idea, something he calls Genesis, that is creation, right straight from the Bible, Genesis by observership. Our observations might actually contribute to the creation of physical reality. To Wheeler, we are not simply bystanders. We are shapers and creators living in a participatory universe. Wheeler did an experiment where he proved that you can change you know quasars? They're way out at the edge of the galaxy. I don't think anybody really knows what they are, but whatever. They, they emit light, and they're way far away. And when you observe them, what they were in the past actually changes. They've proven this. So when they observed it, what it was 100 billion, not 100 billion, 100 million years ago is now what it is when you observed it, which makes no sense. <laughs> like, how does that make any sense? It doesn't. Here's a quote from a guy named Seigard Next slide, please. I also started to doubt that we humans can use our talents to eventually attain total and complete knowledge of everything. Remember what I said about the way we in this culture view history? It's this ascent, and someday we'll have it all figured out. And is a he's a biochemist. He worked, uh, I think, for the CDC or something like that, and he's—you uh, know, he's got a PhD. He's, he, he calls himself a moderately good scientist, <laughs> but he started learning about these things, And he was raised an atheist, communist Jew. Literally the furthest thing from a Christian you could, honest, I could imagine at least, like every possible barrier to Christianity was there. And he spent his whole life just mocking Christianity, but he wrote a book, The Works of His Hands. And he said, these realities, that things that we look at are not always what they seem. He said, I was still an atheist, but I was no longer smug and comfortable. Science itself had opened up cracks of doubt in my sense of certainty. See, all these things that are just, they're questions that we can't answer. They should lead us to a sense of humility about what is possible. And John was an eyewitness of these events. So if you assume that they couldn't happen, I think that's a little arrogant. You know, I I study history. I think I'm pretty good at it. Whenever I read something in history, I don't assume anything about it. The moment you do that, you color what it is. Kind of like when we observe light, it becomes what we expect it to be. It's the same with history. If you assume Jesus couldn't possibly turn water into wine without a nuclear explosion, everybody, I did the math. It's like, man, you really don't understand the point, do you? Because you've made a lot of assumptions. And so to those of you who don't believe, I challenge you that as we study the book of John, allow yourself to consider the possibility that just maybe... This is possible. Just maybe you don't know as much as you think you know. And that's something that I deal with every day. (laughs) I make a lot of statements of fact, and then people are like, well, let me fact check this guy. Okay, that's fine. It's good for us to be challenged in what we believe. Even if you end up saying, you know what, I don't agree. I think that John was a liar, which I would think is a hard thing to say given the things that he taught people to do. You know, I've met a lot of liars in my day. They don't tend to do the right thing. They tend to do what's good for them. And John is not like that. And the writers of the Gospels, they're not like that. They tell the truth because they act like it. They live in such a way that puts, honestly, all of us to shame. And I'm not saying we're not Christians. We're not, that's not the point. The point is we should emulate them, and they're probably truthful people. They're like, hey, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. His glory was revealed to us because we were there. I'm not going to just assume they made it up. For what? So they could get executed and beaten and nobody likes them? Uh, that sounds like a great lie. <laughs> you know, whenever I lie, it's to benefit me. You know, I told my teacher in middle school, I don't have my hockey skates because my feet hurt. And I had them, and he was like, open your locker. And I was like, fine. And they were, and I started crying. <laughs> because, you know, my lie failed. That's not how these guys are, they tell the truth. They tell it in such a way that you can see it in their lives. And so I'm challenging you to open up your heart to the possibility that there is more to this than you think. You know, I was watching a little conversation between an atheist gal named Susan Blackmore and this guy, Dr. Jordan Peterson. They're both doctors, I think, whatever. I don't know if people get really picky about, put doctor in front of my name. But she said, you know, I wake up every morning and I just feel gratitude. And Jordan Peterson was like, and that is good for you, actually. It's a good practice. Jordan Peterson said, to who? (laughs) And she's like, I don't know, to the universe. (laughs) And he basically just questioned her on that. He didn't say, you're wrong. But consider it. Why do we feel gratitude? Who are we grateful to? You know, I feel gratitude when I don't crash into a snowbank this morning. And I didn't do anything. I mean, that didn't almost happen. But the point is, I was grateful. But who was I grateful to? Myself? It's kind of weird. I wasn't. I wasn't grateful to my wife. She wasn't driving. Be grateful to the universe. Well, the universe doesn't care about me. Why do we feel that way? All right, so anyways, just food for thought. But as we close out, um, we're going to have communion. And uh, Tom's going to share, and it's going to be excellent. But I'd just like us to say a prayer to consider these things from, from God's word. Dear Heavenly Father, I, I am grateful. I pray that your grace and goodness in our lives can overflow in abundance to others. That we would be filled up by our quiet times, by our time in your word, to remember your goodness to us and to be the same for others and bring the age to come into the present just like our Lord Jesus did. In Jesus' name, amen.